the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show. I'm Tim DeMoss. I want to jump into a conversation here with one of our listeners. His name is Mark Story. How are you doing, Mark? Very well, sir. And yourself? I'm good. What are you up to? I work for a company here in New Jersey that does uh, heating and air conditioning. Ah. And fortunately, it's a little bit, uh, a little slower day, a little bit soggy, but praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> does that affect your uh, your work? I mean, the fact that it's, uh, it is the way it is, weather-wise? Um, to an extent, as far as, um, you know, unfortunately, we're still using heat in the middle of the May, so yeah. um, if we get no heat calls, not a problem, but... Um, if we have to do outside work, say in the air conditioning unit, then uh problem, especially routine maintenance. And uh, we kind of get away around it. Sometimes we buy an old beach umbrella to kind of uh, shield ourselves and yeah. improvise. You know? Yeah, yeah. How long have you been doing that for, by the way? Oh, uh, October of 85. Whoa. Coming up on 34 years. That's like a long time. Yeah. Yes, it is. And, uh, <laughs> However, that time went by pretty quickly. I hear your turn signal, by the way. I'm glad that you're using it. <laughs> Especially in New Jersey, right? Yeah. <laughs> anywhere. I'll take it anywhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> the other day you won a Wawa gift card when we were having folks call in. They were just sharing a little bit about where they're from, what they, you know, maybe how they found out about FIL. And when you were giving your info to, uh, the hardest working producer in Philadelphia radio between four and four fifty eight fifty, Joe Harnett. He mentioned you had this story, and then you emailed later, and uh, this is really cool stuff. Uh, this is why I like to, you know, we have interviews, but I like to have people on from the audience all the time as much as possible because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right around us. Part of your journey in life involved a rather hair raising experience, so share about it if you would. I will. I will. Um, at the time I was flying a lot, I actually had an aircraft. I owned an aircraft um, that was based out of South Jersey Regional in Lumberton, New Jersey. I was a youth leader at the time, and we had a year-long fundraising um, uh, thing called Speed Delight, where kids and youth group would raise money for overseas missionaries for vehicles and hmm. sound equipment and such. And uh, I got the idea that, okay, the young man, a young lady who raised the most money during that year, I would give him a reward, a reward flight. Okay, so you, thought, you're the pilot. You're going to take him up. Exactly. Okay. This is January 2006, thought, just to, for the timeline for people to understand. Go ahead. That's correct. This was 2006, and the end of the year 2005, I decided, okay, we'll do this in 2006. I thought, where will we go? Well, Lancaster, once you get outside of Philly, there's really nothing much to see, you know, cow pastures and yeah. that sort of thing. It's like, well, I really want to take them someplace scenic, and there's something called the Hudson Corridor where you fly – at a low altitude above the Hudson River, 
much more scenic. I've always wanted to do it for years, and I thought, well, why not take them there? And But I just kind of wanted to be a little cautious where I hired an instructor to take me up for the first time. You were legal to, yep. go, to go up, but just to make sure you knew the path before you started to take the kids from the group. Exactly. And the reason for that is you have to self-announce your position according to the landmark. So I needed to learn the landmarks in order to self-announce my position because there's a lot of traffic up and down the river, varying speeds. You have helicopters, you have fixed-wing aircraft. And, and again, you're flying pretty low because you have to avoid JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark's airspace. Okay. So um, hired an instructor who I only flew with once before, two days before that, and I just liked his style. John Everly, I'll give him a shout-out. He's a great guy and uh, okay. the quintessential instructor, just a, just a teacher at heart. Yeah. And uh, I liked his style, so I hired him to take me up there two days later. Practice run, but it turned out <laughs> a little differently than expected. <laughs> okay. Were you along the Hudson River at that point already or approaching, or where were you? Well, approaching. We took off out of Lumberton. Um, we got a little altitude. Uh, we called off our flight plan to McGuire Air Force Base, and they had us on radar, and they handed us off the New York approach. And we were given a choice to fly 2,000 feet. Uh, through the Class B airspace, which would be Newark. Okay. Or do you want to go VFR, that stands for Visual Flight Rules, below the airspace? In other words, you will be not on radar guidance and on your own and left up to yourself to visually look for any obstacles, aircraft, and the such, and just follow the rules that are predetermined. And so what, and it's what, a lot more work. What altitude is that level? You have to stay below 1,100 feet, in other words, uh, okay. to stay out of uh, the major airport's airspace. So we chose 950 feet. And I said, let's do this the way I'm going to take the kids so we can all enjoy this. I'll be familiar with the landmarks. I will stay out of the airspace because you get in a lot of trouble if you um, go through major airport's airspace, which is called Class B, uh, without permission. And not good. They can revoke your license. Sure. Uh, very easily, and especially post 9-11 days, even more so enforced. Yeah. Chatting with Mark Story, WFIL listener from Jersey, Tim DeMoss Show, AM560, WFIL, WFIL.com. Continue. We're descending down to 950 feet. We see our first landmark, which is the Verizon and Hours Bridge. Just really cool seeing everything from above there. New York City, it's a very, very amazing city, but when you see it from the air, it's even more incredible. So pass by the Verizon and Hours Bridge. I look to the left. We self-announce our position according to the Statue of Liberty, and that goes. Uh, we call out our tail number two seven five nine. Mike, nine hundred fifty feet. Lady to the left. So the thing is, you have to be very brief. And the point of that is just to, you're communicating with who, just to let them know they're they're watching. Kind of anybody else who's flying around to keep you all out of each other's way. That's correct. So you're self-announcing your position, so all the other aircraft in the area will know where you are, how high you were and to look for you visually and avoid you. Okay. Um, so you're up there, you're training, you're getting ready to learn this path mm-hmm. so you can take the youth group kids um, who won the trip. And then <coughs> that's my so, en- that's my engine impersonation. There you go. That's pretty much what the engine did. Going further north, we passed by Ground Zero. At the time, there was nothing being built there except uh, what would be the Freedom Tower or one world trade, as it were, and further north, we get to the George Washington Bridge, and about a mile north of the George Washington Bridge, the engine sputtered and conked out. And I'm going to just pause right here and 
play a mean radio trick. We have a short break, and let's continue with your story, Mark, after a quick break. Mark is one of our listeners. We'll see what happens next. Next, Tim DeMoss Show, AM560, WFIL, WFIL.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM560, WFIL, and WFIL.com. Tim DeMoss Show, AM560, WFIL, WFIL.com. So, Mark Sawyer, one of our many fine listeners, sharing today about going up in a plane, if you're just tuning in, and uh, we got to know Mark, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago. We were giving away cards, gift cards to listeners, just for calling in, saying their name, where they're from, a little bit about themselves, maybe where they heard about the radio station, found out about this amazing story that we're in the middle of right now. Continue, Mark. And I looked at the instructor. He looked at me and said, what did you do? Nothing. Absolutely not. Like, oh, this is not happening. Now, given the regulations and your pilot's operating handbook, if you have enough altitude, try to attempt a restart, um, which is what we try to do very quickly. Um, there are specific procedures you have to do. First thing is best glide speed. Keep yourself in the air with minimum altitude drop. So that's exactly what we attempted to do. We went through the whole procedure. I'm in the left seat as pilot in command. He's in the right seat as instructor. Again, I'm a pilot in my own right, licensed pilot, and uh and then the last procedure is to switch tanks. There's a valve to my left knee. His first call was, okay, I have the flight controls. I give up flight controls to him. And now I turn the valve. Last procedure, engine still is not starting. The reality set in that, okay, water is the only option. By now we're off the coast of uh, Yonkers. Um, the engine's not restarting. There's piers to the right, buildings, palisades to the left. Because we are going north. And water is the only option. And we so, have to avoid whatever traffic is anchored there, barges and tugboats and that sort of thing. So you're 1,000 feet up roughly, and you're having to quickly try to see if you can, as you say, reestablish the ability to fly. The fact that it wasn't going to work took how long? It was a half a minute before you realized this, this, this is not going to happen? We're going down? Yes. Wow. And that or less. I mean, everything happened just so quickly. It's, it's hard, but... Um, with the glide ratio of the plane, it's not a lot of time to be kept in the air before you're uh, meeting the water and ditching, as it were. And uh, the water is getting closer and closer. The engine's not restarting. We called off a, quick, a couple of quick maydays on the radio, on the emergency channel, and it was inevitable that we were going to land in the water. Chatting with Mark, uh, Mark, sorry, who's, uh, you're, where are you from? What part of Jersey? You're Marlton, Jersey, New Jersey, or where are you from? Actually, I live in Burlington Township now, originally from Philly, from Kensington. Okay. And uh, now I'm living in Jersey for ooh, the past um, 35, 38 years. Okay. When your plane's going down, because you were just going that little training mission, trying to, you know, I mean, trying to make sure you knew where you were going for a future flight. When you're going down, is, is the what's the plane doing? Is it going, is it dropping versus on an angle? How much control do you have? Oh, we have full control. There's... um. Small aircraft um, have a very good what's called glide ratio. So even though we're descending, um, it's a very smooth descent and pretty much the same as your own final approach to a runway. And this is basically what we're doing: uh, taking the plane down on a controlled descent. Okay, but you said the you knew getting the, closer and closer. You said you knew it was going to be the water. So was there another option? I mean, briefly, was there another place? Like, is there is there a runway? Is there a field? something like that, or is water really the desirable option at that point? Water is really the only option. If you remember back um, three years later, you know, incident with Sully and the uh, large airliner. So basically, 
if you didn't have enough altitude and enough uh, horizontal glide ratio to make it to an airport, really water is the safer option because uh, it's such a populated area up there. Okay. And the water is getting closer and closer. And John has, you know, John Everly, the uh, flight instructor, he has the aircraft. And basically my feet are pinned on the floor and my hands are under the seat just so I have no even temptation to touch the flight controls. He's got control of the aircraft. I'm just, well, if we uh, make it through this, um, are we going to land inverted or upright? And there's a lot of questions going into my mind, but it's in the Lord's hand. I just can't believe this is actually happening. We were discussing this two days before in a hangar. So here we are doing it for real. <laughs> Had your instructor been through anything like this before himself? Never. No, never. So never. You, so you can um, train for it, but you have no idea really what it's going to, I mean, even what it's going to feel like to hit the water. Do you, do you have any inclination about if you, let's say you even hit it whatsoever. So if you hit it nicely the way you want to, you still don't know how violent an impact that would be. Exactly. Because when a plane does come down to the water, something happens, it stalls. Not that the engine stalls, but a stall means there's not enough air passing underneath the wings to create lift and uh, maintain flight. So we had to slow it down, just like we're doing a landing as much as we could. But by the time the aircraft stalls, we're doing about 45, 50 miles an hour. And the airplane still slams into the water, even though it was nice and nice and smooth. It was a very calm day. Yeah. I had to peg my eyes open because if we did go inverted, if the plane landed upside down, um, the next fear is I do not want to get trapped in here. And, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's kind of funny. I have to share with this. that In a crisis situation, it's uh, funny how some of the things that you think about and your mind goes. So when we hit the water, you know, thank the Lord that we were upright to get the door open. There's only one door on the right side, and he scrambled out. We unbuckled our seatbelts. We didn't want to get trapped in the aircraft. Uh, he stood in the right wing. I'm sorry, I stood in the right wing. He stood in the left. First thing I thought when I got out of the aircraft is, I hope nobody saw that. <laughs> As a pilot, that's, that's the worst landing ever. <laughs> so you almost die, but you're worried about what people think. Isn't it something? Human nature. It really is. It's a true story, but then I think, no, this is New York. Everybody saw it, at least I hope. <laughs> Uh, so let me ask you this. And, did, did, so had you talked about the fact that you would have to get out of the plane and each take a wing? Like, is that part of your training to know, hey, we made it, then you sink. Whoops, we should have been spreading out. Is it, I mean, is that part of the protocol? Not at all. Not at all. The thing is, um, we do go through training as far as if you have to ditch in water, if you have to land unexpectedly, what's called an off-field landing. And there's a lot of things where you're supposed to be doing flying. You have to enjoy the flight, but also you're supposed to be looking for an alternate landing location just in case was a single engine aircraft you don't have anything back up you only have that one engine if you lose that well that's it you know that's your only power source and uh you know the only source of maintaining flight so yes you are supposed to look you're supposed to know where you are know where you're going because uh even at um 100 knots which is about 115 miles per hour in a small aircraft things do happen quickly as opposed to an automobile yeah so you're supposed to have a lot of alternatives, a lot of emergency procedures. Emergency procedures are um, accentuated highly in their training, you know, for obvious reasons. And flying, you know, there's a great enjoyment to flying, but you know, there's an inherent danger. Of course. So let me ask you this. So uh, for those just tuning in, Tim DeMoss Show, AM560, WFIL, WFL.com. Mark Sorry is uh, uh, one of the listeners in the local area who he mentioned, hey, I was in this uh, interesting experience a number of years ago, this plane crash, which we're talking about right now. And so I, I want to get to the, a little bit to a, uh, in a moment about, you know, 
what God did in your life at that point, where you were with him before and after the crash, but uh, whatever that might be. But let me ask you this, because you're, you're out of the sky, you're in the water, but you're not out of the woods, as they say, because no. the water's cold, among other things, right? It, we were told it was between 38 and 40 degrees. We're in the water, and the plane took maybe a minute and a half, two minutes to sink. But right before it sank, uh, I was wearing an Air Force-type jacket. Uh, I've never been in the military, but you know, I liked it because it was light. There's pockets for pens on the sleeve, and it just was a very practical uh, piece of uh, uh, clothing. But I turned it inside out because I had an orange liner, so now the orange liner would be showing. Um, I never carry my phone on me. It was in my flight bag, but I got destroyed as soon as we hit the water wet. And I said, John, I'm calling 911. Get on it. I called 911. The phone made, the, made it through the crash? Or are you saying he did? He did. It you... did. I had, it, I had it in my pocket. And I'm thinking, you know, when you're flying, there's a lot of redundancies building the aircraft. Um, small planes, there's two spark plugs. There's two magnetos, two fuel pumps, one mechanical, one electrical. I figured, well, if we have to call on a flight plan, why not have two phones available, his and mine, just in case one fails. Wow. And there's always that mentality of redundancy, safety, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, as far as from a pilot standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Sorry from Burlington Township, New Jersey, our guest. We need to take a quick break. We'll come back and continue the conversation to find out what happens. You're listening to The Tim DeMoss Show on AM560 WFIL. WFIL.com. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for tuning in to The Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. AM560 WFIL, WFIL.com. We are in the uh, middle of a conversation now with Mark Sori, one of our listeners. If you're just tuning in, you can hear the whole podcast at WFIL.com. But, but Mark uh, was a pilot, and part of a, as part of his youth group kind of activities, had thought in t- it was 2005 there was a fundraiser going on, at, you know, and, and the reward for the boy and girl who raised the most money um, for one of their endeavors would get to go up in the plane with him. So Mark. But before that, Mark went up in a plane with another pilot, someone who was an instructor, to guide him through the path that he was going to take, make sure he was familiar with it. So when he took the kids up, he'd already know where everything was, how to report properly and all that. Except during this test mission with the instructor, Mark wound up uh, having a situation where the the, uh, engine failed. And so now the plane is down. It's hitting the water. It lands on the water. Uh, hits hard. They get out of the plane. They're balancing the plane by being on either side of the wings, uh, Mark and his instructor. But the water's freezing, you talked about, Mark. How did you get discovered? I mean, because that, that part of the whole thing is part of the equation. I mean, you said the plane actually sank within a couple minutes. Well, and here's the miracle part. Um, I have my own miracle, and then um, it, it gets a little emotional for me even to this day. Um when the plane sank, I just wanted to get out of what else was my first reaction. There's a barge in the middle of the river. It was closer than the shore. I said, John, follow me. And I didn't realize John couldn't swim, but I'm swimming for, for everything I'm worth. 30 seconds later, my lungs are burning, and I'm looking up. Well, the current's taking us further north away from the barge, and I thought, well, we're not going to make the barge. I don't know much about hypothermia, but I do know the more energy you expend, the faster I'm going to go unconscious. And... um I look at that, just that's when John and I get separated. Uh, rule number one, I would never do that again. I've never gotten separated from anybody I'm with. But uh, it was just wanted to get out of the water. So, yeah, sure. And then, I, and then the reality hit in. The reality set in is like, is this my last day on earth? And um, I've been walking with the Lord for some time now since 
94, and by his grace, I, um, the reality set in, Lord, I didn't plan it this way. I, um, and this is my last day on earth. I said, Lord, I didn't quite plan it this way. I said, Lord, but Lord, you own me. You own my life. I belong to you. So, Lord, if this is my last day on earth, I don't want you to be ashamed of me for kicking and screaming for my life. If I'm going to go out, I want to praise you. I said, Jesus, you're my rock, my savior, my fortress. I love you, Lord. All my heart and my life belongs to you. I said, Lord, I don't want to die. But, Lord, that is your choice, not mine. And um, for that whole time, and then I heard something, Mark, that still small voice in the, I know who that is. Mm. Now, pause there. I went to Gerard College. I lost my father when I was five. Um, I went there for 11 years. It was an orphanage in uh, North Philadelphia, and uh, I lived there. So one of the things we had to do, we had to learn how to swim. The Lord told me, Mark, yes. Oh, I knew that. Remember you learned how to swim when you were seven years old? Yeah, God. What's the first thing they taught you? Float on your back. Relax. Stop trying to tread water. So I just float on my back for a while. A couple minutes later, I heard it again. I heard him. Mark. Yeah, God. Remember when you were in Boy Scouts when you were 11 and you went for that life-saving merit badge? Yeah, God. What did they teach you? Trap bear in your clothing. So... I let the jacket unzipped in case it weighed me down. I didn't want to drown in it and if I had to get it off, but I just kind of flapped the, um, the front of it, trapped there in the back of the collar, pinched it closed, and now I'm floating on my back with a little bit of flotation that I could muster up in the jacket and laying there. And then I see a Coast Guard helicopter going from south to north. Unmistakably, how come they don't see us? Come on. And every 10 minutes he passed by. Well, the story behind that was, they were out of Atlantic City, and they were on a Homeland Security patrol, and they were delayed getting on the patrol for 45 minutes. You know, the, um, the commander was supposed to be on that helicopter, but he got caught up in some office work and told somebody else to go. And because they were delayed for 45 minutes, they were six miles away from us. They heard our mayday, and now they're doing the search. They have no rescue equipment, no medical equipment, no rescue swimmer, but they figured we heard his mayday. we got to try to find this guy. So um, every 10 minutes, back and forth, why don't they see me? Well, they told me later to try to look for something inside of a basketball, which is my head, in a mile-wide river, no small feet. And, uh, yeah. Absolutely. and um, they were the ones that actually rescued me. And we were in that water for a long time. Now I'm getting very numb. And uh, I couldn't hear John anymore. I thought, oh, my God, did he drown? And... You'd lost sight of him at this quiet. point, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't hear him scream for help anymore. I mean, there was a tugboat in the middle of the river, and we knew, we saw the radar going around, so somebody had to be aboard, but they just didn't see us or hear us. And, uh, again, Monday was the holiday. So, um, anyway, a while longer, I thought, I know I've been in this water a long time. It doesn't feel like it. I know I've been here a long time, and I'm getting really numb, Lord. I don't know how much longer I can hang on. About 300 yards away, I saw an NYPD helicopter show up. I saw the rescue swimmer go after John. I thought, well, that's great. Looks like John's alive. And the next terrifying thought is, Lord, if they leave, I'm dead. Please don't let them leave without me. Yeah. And um, 
I'm watching the rescue. There's no sense screaming. 300 yards away, they're not going to hear me or see me. And then I hear another helicopter screaming up from behind me, and there's that Coast Guard helicopter. They were watching the rescue, and I made eye contact with the pilot because they're trained for motion. Um, Whatever I could, I just raised my hand and waved, and he saw me, um, hovered over top of me, and then... uh, Uh, and I thought, God, come on, where's the rescue swimmer? They didn't have anybody to send in to me. So I felt a thump on my left shoulder. Um, it was the basket. They are trying to scoop me up but as best they could. And I just grabbed where the cable attached my, uh, onto my left wrist and kind of hugged the cable. It felt good to hang on to something at this point. But I couldn't get in the basket. They lowered it and tried to scoop me in, which they did manage. I mean, they got half of me in, my right leg hanging out, and... Uh, they started winching me up into the helicopter, and I saw that river getting further and further below me. Like, thank you, Lord. Oh, God, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. This thing is really loud. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Just, <laughs> just, they got me in the helicopter, and um, at that point, I just want to know how long I've been in the water. And I asked what time it was. And I just deducted from the last time I looked at my watch before we into then. We've been in that water at least 45, 50 minutes. We should be dead. And, um, they followed the MIP helicopter to the uh, trauma center, and um, they're pretty hypothermic. But um, they also thought I had a uh, what they call a cardiac event in the water. They kept me for a few days. Further testing, it proved to just be muscle damage from the uh, hypothermia. And um, here I am to tell you the story. Mark Sorey, Burlington, Township, New Jersey, a WFIL listener. He's our guest uh, this hour. We'll wrap up Sorry's story, such as it is, in just a moment. Listening to the Tim DeMoss Show, AM 560, WFIL and WFIL.com. Have a guest you'd like to hear on the Tim DeMoss Show on AM 560, WFIL? Email D at WFIL.com. Tim DeMoss Show, AM 560, WFIL, WFIL.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you appreciate the program, feel free to tell a friend about it. And you can get podcasts of all the broadcasts as well at WFIL.com. Our guest for the bulk of the hour has been a gentleman named Mark Sorry. He's in Burlington Township, New Jersey. And so Mark has been sharing this hour a rather remarkable story, uh, including this, this plane, you know, uh, centering around this plane crash. As we kind of land the plane, so to speak, here, uh, Mark, you know, I just want to ask you, spiritually speaking, whether it's before the crash, after the crash, what God's done, you know, how if this remains super vivid in your mind, if it's dimmed at all over time, or no, it hasn't dimmed. I've I kept um, the newspaper articles and such. Um, days afterward, um, even laying in the hospital, there's a lot of radio stations that call me, TV stations that called me. At first, I was like, oh, I don't want to be bothered. Just leave me, leave me alone. So one or two of them, I kind of, you know, just kind of told my my brother-in-law at the time. Uh, Please, I don't want to bother. And then I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous and selfish. It's like I have a, a unique opportunity to glorify God and tell him what he did for me. And this story isn't about me. So I accepted whatever calls came in. Um, I was asked to give my testimony in church and before the major television stations came and, and taped it. And um, now, personally, I'm, I'm the type of person, I like photography. I'm not a professional by any means. 
but I like being on the backside of the lens as opposed to the front. Yeah. And, uh, but I said, well, this story isn't about me. So Lord, you allowed it to happen. You're going to have to help me with this testimony. And, um, and he did, he's faithful. Again, I, this story isn't about me. It's about the Lord. And, uh, and what he did for me and what he's capable of. And if I walk away with anything, there's one thing I know. I can trust him with anything and everything, even my very life. And not just me, for you, for every listener out there, for anybody who trusts in the name of Jesus Christ, you can trust God with your very life because he loves you that much and more. Amen. Amen. Mark, I know it's your work day. I appreciate you taking time to chat a little bit about these things. And, and in the end, that's what we hope this program and the station is here for, honestly, is to not to have a show, not to have a station, but to use it to encourage people because there are a lot of people listening, all kinds of walks of life, going through all kinds of different things. But John 3.16, there's the God above who made us, made in his image, sent the son for us, and some have accepted him, some have not yet. But the encouragement there can come from any different place. And today you get that opportunity. We're, we're glad to have you being able to testify to the fact that God does love them and wants to uh, save them, you know, spiritually yep. and physically too. Perhaps uh, in your case there, there's a great example of that. So thank you for, and, uh, yeah. And thank you. And I just, um, I was just telling the customer just before you uh, sent me your text uh, to call in, um, I was just telling a customer about this and, and here's the wonderful opportunity that I'm always given almost every time for somebody who doesn't believe. Most people uh, reply with, oh, you're a very lucky man. That's like, oh, no, sir. Oh, no, man. I don't believe in luck. And here's what happened. People say there is no God. I beg to differ. I heard him, and I tell them my story in this way. I was there. It happened to me, and I can't refute it. So yeah. God's given me a wonderful tool to tell people about the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you again, Mark. Thank you also for listening in and, and for being part of the FIL listening family. And God bless you as you keep serving him day by day with your work. And you as well, Tim. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. You too now. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Mark Story, Burlington Township, New Jersey. He won a gift card with us about three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. And just uh, when we found out off air about the story, a little bit of it, thought this would be nice to have him on. <laughs> wow. So I don't know. Part of <laughs> there's a lot and that's there's a lot there's a lot to listen to. If you're just tuning in, I get the podcast. We should have it ready for you in the next hour. Uh quite a story to go up in a plane. I mean it's everybody's, you know, nightmare in a way. That's why some people don't fly. They're afraid to. And I know when I go up, I mean, you never know. This is the time that for some reason the plane's gonna go down. And in his case, he's on the plane, just him and his instructor, and the engine fails. So, uh, But there's a lot in and around that. And so, again, you can find out more about the whole story of what God has done at WFIL.com. Just click the podcast tab, drop-down menu, says Tim DeMoss Show, and there's a bunch of them there from uh, the you know, last eight or nine months we've been doing this broadcast. We appreciate your prayers for the program. Uh, I, I ask you for those. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff that goes into bringing things together. God weaves it together ultimately, but there's a lot of phone calling that goes in, you know, corresponding with people, preparing to have conversations. And so we hope that it's a blessing to you. We like to have guests on 
both in our local area as well as ranging as far and wide as overseas and other countries and realizing that God is the God of the whole world. So, you know, people will say, God bless America, for example. Yes, yes, but God bless other countries too. He sent a son for everybody. So our hope is that the program reflects that. And um, yeah, wow. I'm Tim DeMoss. We'll be right back with more on Philadelphia's Christian Radio, AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. It's the Tim DeMoss Show podcast, available at WFIL.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out the Tim DeMoss Show. We're here weekday afternoons, 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. We want to bring on a guest right now on our program, Professor Daniel L. Dreisbach from American University in D.C. Hello, sir. Hello, Tim. It's great to join you today. Thank you very much for doing so and for elevating the intelligence of this program just by the fact that you are who you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you. I, yeah, I know you were in town at the National Constitution Center doing a lecture. And um, maybe start off if you can just share at, at American University. You're in the Department of Justice and Law and Criminology. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, it is a uh, academic law department, and uh, I specialize in legal history with a particular interest in American constitutional history. Wow. Well, that's something I, I understand your research has even been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, you've you've been doing a good job if they're they're looking to you for some uh, insight. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, I've written a number of books. Uh, my most recent book, which is uh, what I was drawing on last night in my talk, was, is a book called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers that explores how the American founders use the Bible in their political pursuits, their political discourse and projects. Okay. Now, maybe you could share a little bit about what, what folks would have heard had they been at the talk, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty that you, you could get into there, but how the Bible is woven into the fabric of the of the whole American experience. That's right. So uh, I was speaking last night, as you say, at the National Constitution Center, so I wanted to focus specifically on how the Bible uh, may have informed, may have shaped an American constitutional tradition, and in particular, how the Bible uh, influenced the U.S. Constitution that was written, of course, here in Philadelphia. Uh, the view that one often encounters in the academy is that the Constitution was a strictly secular project, that uh, the Bible had no influence, Christianity had no influence on the, on the founders and, and on their constitutional project. But I argued to the contrary, uh, that, that the Bible played an important role. Now, I also wanted to emphasize the point that the American founders, the Constitution writers, they drew on a variety of intellectual perspectives. Uh, for example, they were drawing on the English constitutional tradition. They were also students of certain Enlightenment thought and classical uh, republicanism, that is the republicanism of, let's say, the Roman Empire. But what I tried to argue last night was that among these intellectual traditions that we must study if we want to truly understand the broad range of ideas that inform the American founders, we must include the Bible in that mix. How was that received as far, and in general, as you as you make your case, maybe you could share a point or two that, or an aspect or two of how the Bible has influenced, uh, and, and how do people tend to respond to that? Well, first, 
first of all, let me just say we had a full house. Uh, uh, we had a sold-out uh, event, which uh, is a, an indication, I think, that there is uh, great interest uh, in this uh, topic. Excellent. Now, in my talk, uh, what I suggested is that the Bible influenced uh, the American constitutional tradition in a variety of ways, okay. or let me say, in a, at a number of levels. Uh, and, and I gave some very specific examples uh, in illustrating the influence of the Bible. I, I began, for example, by talking about how a biblical view of mankind, that is to say, man is a fallen creature, what we know from reading Genesis chapter 3, for example, uh, I think had a profound impact on the founding generation. They wrote a constitution knowing that they were writing a constitution for a fallen people. Man is a sinful creature, and there's a need to check the use of power, the exercise of power. And so there's this obsession by the Constitution writers for things like separation of powers, checks and balances. And again, I think that's a product of a biblical understanding of human nature. I also suggested that the Bible provided models, models of law and civil government that the American founding generation studied and to some extent wanted to... Uh, Emulate in their own political system. And, and I gave an example of, of the idea of republicanism. There were many Americans in the founding generation who believed that uh, in the Hebrew experience, in the story of the children of Israel from the time of the Exodus to the time of, of the coronation of Saul as king of Israel, there was a kind of republican form of government in place in Israel. And so there were many Americans in the founding era that that studied this portion of, of Scripture to try to understand what that Republican government looked like. And at the very least, they were, they were persuaded that Republicanism was a form of government that enjoyed God's favor. And that was enough uh, to recommend that they study Republicanism and perhaps implement Republicanism in their own forms of government. Professor Daniel Dreisbach from American University, our guest, was in town last night with a lecture sold out, which is great to know, at the National Constitution Center in Philly. Uh, and, and just in terms of defining republicanism, is there a concise way that that can be done, or is that a long, longer, deeper answer? Folks are like, how is republicanism equal to republican or close to it, or how would you define it? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. Uh, I think I, I always want to emphasize that we're speaking here of small-r republicanism. This is a, a political idea as opposed to a specific political party that we know in our in our world today. Yeah. So it, 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 republicanism as a political idea always meant at least two things for the American founders. It meant government by consent of the governed, and it secondly meant that government power should always be exercised through representatives of the people. And by filtering political power through representatives, that in, in, in itself was a form of a check on pure democracy or, or pure participation in politics. So Republican always meant government by consent of the government as exercised through representatives chosen by the people. There's one book uh, you wrote curriculum or, or part of curriculum in the culture wars debating the Bible's place in public schools. And um, there was a chapter in there entitled a handbook for Republican citizenship. And it interested me because uh, focus on the family, which airs on WFL every weekday morning at seven. 
And they spearheaded this uh, thing called Bring Your Bible to School Day every year. And last year, we just did this a few weeks ago. Uh, it keeps growing. I think they had 650,000 students do so nationwide from kindergarten to college. Uh, the point being, it can be confusing as to if or what extent a student can bring the Bible to school. Can they open it? Do they have to do it kind of, you know, in the corner or or you can feel a little bit that way maybe? Uh, I wasn't sure how much of that book that you were writing, writing or in your in your practice, uh, you know, in your in your teaching have had that on your radar. Yes, I'm happy to speak to that issue. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding sadly, about the constitutional uh, requirements or uh, prohibitions. There is absolutely no constitutional prohibition on students taking uh, the Bible with them. Uh, There's no prohibition on students being able to talk about the Bible or share uh, views about the Bible with their fellow students. There are, of course, uh, matters of, of appropriate time and place. You know, in the middle of the class, you don't get to interrupt to talk about the Bible. There's a time and place to do it. Uh, but as a general proposition, certainly there is no prohibition on on having the Bible, talking about the Bible in a public school setting. In fact, the Supreme Court of the United States said you can actually teach about the Bible. Now, the court has said that it's inappropriate for school officials to proselytize. That's a different proposition, but it's certainly appropriate for, for a, an appropriate class, let's say a history class or an art class, to talk about the Bible. And again, I think to be an educated person in the Western world, you have to know something about the Bible. Just look at the profound influence on the Bible, on on the arts, on letters, on music. Think about Handel's uh, Messiah, one of the great musical compositions uh, uh, in the Western world. How could we even uh, have a conversation about that without acknowledging the significant role in forming the themes of, of that great musical composition. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Very, very good. Professor uh, Daniel Dreisbach of American University on with us. He's a professor in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology, and an expert on constitutional law and history. Uh, I want to respect your time, so I just had one more question for you. Uh, And just anything that, you know, obviously you're you're passionate about these things, and and this is your life's work in a lot of ways. Um, Any word to the audience, whatever angle you might have in mind, whether it's the need for the next generation of professors and thinkers uh, in your field, or just an encouragement for listeners to give consideration to these things, uh, or, or words of wisdom, whatever you might you might wish to share. Well, uh, it is certainly true that the Bible has played a profound role in American history. Let's not forget that those first church crossed the treacherous waters of the Atlantic Ocean to establish Bible commonwealths in New England. That was what they were attempting to do. And so the Bible from the very first uh, European settlements in the New World has played a vital role in the nation's history, and that has continued throughout American history. The Bible has been one of the most uh, uh, cited and referenced works in political discourse. Uh, You can't read or understand the the speeches of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Take, for example, the Gettysburg address or or his second inaugural address without some understanding of the Bible. And so I think, again, it's vitally important that we have a, a degree of biblical literacy. If we're going to understand who we are as a people uh, and where we've come from, 
uh, in this nation. Uh, and one of the exciting things I've mentioned to Tim is that the American Bible Society is embarking on building what they're calling a Faith and Liberty Discovery Center right here on the on the mall, Independence Mall here in Philadelphia. And it's going to be, a, a, I think, a valuable resource in encouraging visitors to the mall to think about and begin to, to comprehend this vital role the Bible has played in our history as Americans. I heard about that. That's still a year or two away, but it's coming. Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, Independence Mall, right in the heart of the city. Uh, will you have any connection to that yourself, or just you're, you're aware of it, or will you be contributing to it in some way? I have been very privileged and happy to, to serve as a consultant as far as the content. Uh, this is going to be a state-of-the-art, immersive experience for visitors to the mall. And I've played a very small part in, in, in helping those putting the content together. Okay. Uh, again, we want this to be as historically accurate and as historically relevant uh, to the great historical events that have transpired on this mall. Wow, that sounds great. Well, uh, Professor Daniel Dreisbach, our guest this afternoon, um, Do you happen? To, you don't happen to teach a class online, do you? If people wanted to like you... <laughs> Or, or do you? I don't at the moment, but I may sometime in the future. Okay, so people can, and if they would, if they're interested in learning more about your uh, your books, well, we have a podcast, so people can maybe look you up through that, or uh, you know. But if they want to go and find some of the books you've written or been, been part of, is there a best way to do that? Well, uh, you can find almost uh, most of my books available through online sellers like Amazon.com. But let me mention once again that if, if, if listeners have an interest in this particular topic that we've been talking about this, uh, this afternoon, let me encourage them to take a look at my most recent book called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, you can, you can find that at Amazon.com and, and, and most online booksellers. Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. That's great. Thank you so yes, much, sir. Professor Dreisbach. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Tim. All right. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Professor Daniel Dreisbach, American University from the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology. I feel twice as smart as I did yesterday, even earlier today. AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. Have a wonderful evening and looking forward to, Lord willing, seeing you again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 to 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.